This episode of Irish Mythology Podcast is sponsored by McCaffrey Crafts, specialising in authentic walking sticks and shillelaghs handcrafted in County Kerry from Blackthorn that grows out of Irish soil. Find them online at McCaffreyCrafts.com. That's M-C-C-A-F-F-R-E-Y-C-R-A-F-T-S dot com. Hello again and welcome to this very special Iha Hauna episode of the Irish Mythology Podcast, where we'll meet a talking corpse, the restless dead, and take a trip to the other world. I'm Marcus O'Hishkin. And we'll get a glimpse at a world we'll be seeing a lot more of next season on the podcast, the world of the Ulster Cycle. Oh, and there'll also be a bit of time travel. I'm Stephanie Hearney. That's right. Um, We originally recorded this story in two parts in our sound patreon bonus episodes of 2020 and 2021 but but today we're presenting the story in its entirety the adventures of nera that's actri neri in irish is representative of the best of irish mythology in all of its wonderfully weird glory it has those elements we mentioned in the intro as well as appearances from the morrigan queen maeve and her husband king alil mcmatha these are all important figures in the Ulster Cycle, and we'll chat about that after the story. Today we're telling this story because not only is it a great horror tale, it's also set on Iahauna, Halloween. If you want to hear more about the Irish origins of Halloween, be sure to check out our 2020 Samhain special, if you haven't already, where we do a whistle-stop tour of many of the essential components of the festival that you might not have known have their origins in Irish myth and folklore. The Adventures of Nera features one of these, the Slu Shi, whose portrayal in this story is basically as reanimated corpses. Unlike the zombies of Haitian folklore, where this is where the actual term zombie originates, the Slu Shi's reanimation is not the result of necromancy, but rather because they had unfinished business when they died, or they had crimes to atone for. And um, we'll talk a bit more about that after the story but for now here's Steffi with our adaptation of the adventures of Nira in the other world. It was Ihahauna at Rathcruachan, the royal seat of Connacht. Queen Maeve and her husband King Alil Macamata were entertaining their household with a sumptuous feast. Though the first frost was forming at the door of the fort, fires blazed inside that kept the revellers warm. The tables were laden with plates of venison, garnished with blackberries, and there were great pitchers of the finest mead, enough for everyone there to drink their fill. When the meal was finished and the tables were cleared away, the attendees waited for the royal pair to announce the night's entertainment. Perhaps one of the filly would be called upon to terrify the assembled with a tale of monsters from the other world, or someone would be picked at random to play a game of divination. When Maeve and Alil finished speaking among themselves, the king stood and clapped his hands, silencing the room. The first game of the night is a challenge not to be taken lightly. It will determine who of all the warriors of Connacht is the bravest. The warriors in the room stood to the fore. Alil continued... Before we begin our feast, we hung two brigands for their crimes against the Kanata. The challenge before you is to go outside 
leave the walls of Rathcrucon and go to the gallows and tie a withe around the foot of either of the hanged men. The crowd gasped together and then there was silence. On any other night of the year this would barely be a challenge but on Ihahauna the fairy folk of the other world, ferocious beasts and the dead, all walked the land. It was almost unheard of for a mortal to wander out while the veil between the two worlds was at its thinnest, especially at Kruokon, where the best known gate to that place stood. No one stepped forward. Maeve spoke. Whoever completes this challenge can claim whatever prize they so desire. After that, seven warriors stepped forward and each took their turn at the challenge. One after the other they went out and returned without having completed the task, pale of face and shivering with fear, having heard and seen things no mortal would ever want to see or hear. Then it was the turn of Nero. He had fought in a few battles that were little more than skirmishes and was nowhere near as experienced as the six who had already tried. For this reason, no one expected him to even attempt going out after seeing the terror that was on the others. But to their astonishment, he put on his armour, took his best spear, the withe, and without a word... He walked towards the door. Nera, Alil called out. Nera stopped and turned to the king. Take my gold-hilted sword. It will be of some use should you meet the people of the Shi. Nera bowed and took the weapon. When he got outside the fort, the first thing he noticed was the darkness. He had never seen a night so dark. And he couldn't see the stars. Nero stopped dead in his tracks when he heard a terrifying screech. But he gathered his resolve and moved on. When he was halfway down the hill, he thought he saw something move. Something with horns and cloven hooves. But he couldn't be so sure, so he proceeded with his task. And finally, he reached the gallows. He lit a candle so he could see the two brigands. There they hung, wearing only short sackcloth tunics, their flesh pale white and frost starting to gather on their twisted faces. Nera stepped forward and put the withe around one of the captives, but it immediately sprang off. He tried twice more, but the same thing happened. Then, to Nera's astonishment, the hanged man spoke. That won't stay on unless you put a proper peg on it. Nera stumbled back in shock, but he did not run. The dead man continued. You could be at that all night and you'll get the same result. Look there on the ground by the other fella. That's a good peg. Nera looked down and saw the peg on the ground. He picked it up and used it to fasten the withe on around the man's foot, and this time it stayed on. 
Nero looked up at the dead man, who seemed to have a pleased look on his face, as if he was happy to have been proven right one last time. Is there something I can do for you, sir? Nera asked him. A last request, something you didn't think of earlier. Well, said the dead man, I had an awful thirst on me when I was hanged. When I said so, they gave me water, but I was hoping for a proper drink. Would you take me on your back somewhere? We could have a, a draught of something together. Nera nodded. I will. And he took the man down from the gallows and put him on his back. Nera carried the man to the nearest house, but there was a lake of fire around it, so they decided against going in there. The next house they approached had a lake of water around it, and there was no bridge across the water, so they moved on to the next house. Nera went into the house and put the dead man down on the floor. There were two people asleep on beds made of straw, and there were two tubs, one for washing and one for bathing. And in each one sat a generous cup of mead. Nera took the two cups and drank one himself and poured the other into the mouth of the dead man. The dead man at first gulped down the liquid, but the last bit he sprayed from his mouth so that it landed on the two people and the two of them died. What did you do that for? asked Nera. Wasn't it them who told the tale on me? he said. And what can you do? Kill me again? Nera took the dead man back to the gallows and put him back where he found him. He bade him farewell and wasn't sore about the trick that was played for it was the least that could happen on a night such as this. On his way back to Cruachan, he saw something altogether more shocking. In the distance, it looked as if the fort was Maven Allil and all his people inside was burning to the ground. He saw the fairy hosts, the slew she, marching from the fort, each one of them an animate corpse in various states of decay. Each member of the host carried a head on a spear. Nera recognised the head of Alan and the heads of some of his fellow warriors. He took the road and followed the host, trying to mimic their lurching movement and the spasms of the damned. His ploy seemed to work, for when they reached the cave that led to the inside of the she mound, the gate opened before them, and Nera was able to follow them in. He followed them through downward sloping tunnels until, through a subterranean village where the restless dead resided, and on to a larger subterranean town populated by the fairy folk, who looked curiously at the march of the dead as it proceeded through their streets. Nera followed the dead until they reached a great hall, and there, upon a glittering jewel-encrusted gold throne, sat the King of the She, Lord of the Fairies, clothed in silken red and gold robes. The host of the damned, drove their spears into the ground in front of him and the heads on their tops vanished before Nera's eyes. The dead parted into two lines, leaving Nera exposed before the king. Welcome, Nera. It is you I had wanted to meet, for I heard of your bravery on this auspicious night. 
for bringing you here, the damned of the host shall be welcome among the eight she. The king lifted a forked staff from the side of his throne, and one by one the dead stepped forward, and by the touch of the pointed ends were transformed into fairies of various types. Leprechauns, Furjarig, Banshees, Pukas, and so on and so forth. What do you want of me? asked Nero. Go to the last house you passed before you entered my halls. There is a single woman there who will make you welcome. Tell her I sent you to her and come every day to this hall with a burden of firewood. Nera did as he was told and he was welcomed by the young woman. Was it the king himself that sent you? she asked. It was, answered Nera. Well then, I could hardly turn you away and sure, you're a fine looking fella anyway so I'd welcome you even if no one had sent you. So Nera stayed with the woman and every day he carried a burden of firewood to the king's hall and it wasn't long before him and the fairy woman fell in love and were married. On the night of their wedding, as they lay in bed together, the fairy woman asked Nera to tell her the story of how he came to the she. He told her about the dead man on the gallows and how he took him to get a drink. He told her how he saw Cruacon burning and followed the slew she back to the hall of the fairy king. That was indeed an illusion, my love, she said to him. But if it was shown to you on Ihehauna by the slew she, it was a vision of the future. How can I warn my people? he asked her. I will show you the way out of the she, though it feels like a lot more time has passed since you came here. Out there your friends are still gathered around the same cauldron, telling tales of the she while they await your return. They'll never believe I came here and returned to them alive, Nera said. Nera's fairy bride told him he should take some strawberries with him, for the fruits of the summer are long gone in the world of the mortals at this time of year. The following morning, Nera left the she and returned to the land of the mortals, where only three hours had passed since he followed the host to the other world. He arrived at Rathcruachon soon after, and it was true that what he had seen was only a vision, for it still stood in all its glory. When he entered the main hall, his people were shocked to see him. Queen Maeve stood to regard him, making sure he was not some kind of changeling. Where have you been for the last three hours? We feared that you were dead, she asked. Nera bowed before her. I was in the land of the fair folk. I followed the slew she there. Ripples of laughter spread through the hall. If you were in the she, good Nera, you would not have come back alive. It was then that Nera showed them the strawberries and they all gasped with astonishment. He proceeded to tell them the tale of everything that happened 
about his vision and how his fairy bride told him it was a prophecy and that next year the slew she would return to burn Rothcruhan. Alil stood. Then next Samhain, you will lead us to the gates of the Shi, and we will burn it down before they can get to us. Alil sat down and was about to call for more entertainment when Maeve stopped him. I take it from your story that you succeeded in the task Alil set for you. I did, replied Nera. Well, Nera, what would you have as your prize? she asked. Only one thing, Nera replied, that before we burn the she, I may go ahead and bring my wife to safety. Nera was granted his prize, and the household returned to its celebrations, and they were the best sound celebrations that were ever known, for they knew that in a few days they would have to start planning for the battle that would take the place of the next one, and that for some of those gathered, this would be their last. It was Ihahauna at Rath Kruakon, the royal seat of Connacht. And any other year, Queen Maeve and her husband, King Alil Macmata, would be entertaining their household with a sumptuous feast, but not this year. Though the first frost was forming at the door of the fort, no fires blazed to keep the assembled warm. Warriors stood as they hoofed pieces of meat and handfuls of hazelnuts into them to fortify them for the looming battle. Nera stood alongside King Alil and Queen Maeve at the front of the band of warriors. It was a year since he saw the Kruachan burn and he followed the animate corpses of the Sluishi back to the other world. It was there he met the king of the Shi and took himself a fairy bride and it was her who told him that what he saw on Ihahauna was a vision of the future and he should return to warn his people. Now it was time. This was the night that the slew she would march from the other world. They would lurch, spasm and their groans would terrify every mortal who heard them. And if they were not stopped, Rathcruachan would burn to the ground. Do you think we're ready? asked Alil. As ready as we'll ever be to fight the restless dead and the creatures of the she, Nera replied. If you fail tonight, Nera, we'll all be marching with that abominable battalion this time next year, Maeve added. Then we must not fail, said Nera. Be ready to march when I give you the signal. Nera pulled the hood of his cloak over his head and stepped out of the fort into the darkness of Ihahauna. He retraced his steps from the year before and this time, the shrieks and groans, the screams and sounds of cloven hooves did not startle him, and it wasn't long before he reached the cave that was the entrance to the she. 
He went through the portal and followed the fairy road through downward sloping tunnels, through a subterranean village of decrepit thatched cottages that smelled of rotten flesh. He didn't flinch at the sight of the twitching, pale, decaying faces that peered from windows and around doorways, but he didn't stop or look directly at any of them. He continued along the enchanted highway to a larger subterranean town populated by the fairy folk. He kept his head down as he walked the cobblestone streets, passing big strapping leprechauns, child-sized fur jarig, shadowy banshee, cloven-hooved pukas, walking black hounds on leads, and a solitary, drunken, stumbling cluricon. Nera's fairy wife was overjoyed to see him when he arrived at their home. Thanks be your back, she said, giving him a generous hug. Now go up there to the king's hall and bring a burden of firewood with you. I've been hawking it in your place since you've been gone. I told the king there was a sickness on you, but he's been getting suspicious of late. Nera lifted the burden of firewood that was sitting by the door onto his shoulder. And just as he was about to leave, the fairy woman tapped him on the shoulder. He turned to see her pointing at a toddler playing with wooden toy cows in the corner. The firewood wasn't the only burden I bore for you when you were away. This is your son, Aengon. Nero was startled at first, but then a broad smile swept across his face. Go on now, said his wife. You can play with your son after the king gets his wood. Nero went to the king's fort with the burden of firewood. The guards on the gate didn't even look at him as he walked through. He went through the courtyard until he reached the great hall where the king of the Shi, lord of the fairies, sat upon a glittering jewel-encrusted gold throne clothed in silken red and gold robes. Oh look, there's Nera, back from the dead, said the king. Nera placed the firewood on the ground and stood before the throne. There was a terrible sickness upon me, but I am at your service once more. Good, said the king. I heard you married the woman I sent you to. I don't recall giving my permission. My apologies, I was not aware of that custom. What can I do to make it up to you? Nero replied. The king chuckled. You can go home and look after your wife and son. Nero bowed and left the fort. When he returned to the house, he went to pick up his son, but his fairy wife tapped him on the shoulder and said, you can play with your son when you have tended to our herd. She pointed out the door and Nera turned to see a herd of cattle where none had stood before. Take special care of the white one, the fairy woman continued. I gave that one to our son as a gift when he was born. Nera took the herd and led them through the streets of the town and onto a pasture where they could graze. 
As dusk descended, Nira felt sleepy and decided to take a nap before returning home. He had barely nodded off when a dark winged shadow descended upon the flock and two claws grasped the white cow. The braying cattle woke Nira and he looked up just in time to see a scald crow flying away grasping the cow. Nira anxiously set off back to his family with the remainder of the herd, mortified that he had let his son's cow be stolen. When he reached the house, his wife, his son and the cow were waiting for him outside. Oh, thank the gods, Nira exclaimed. I was resting my eyes and a crow swooped down and carried the cow away. How did she end up back here? You shouldn't have closed your eyes, his wife replied. But don't be worrying, it was just the morrigan. She took her off to be bulled by the bull of Cooley, no less. Nero wiped the sweat off his brow and went to pick up his son. No time for that, said the fairy woman. You have to go back to your people now to warn them. The slew she will march on Kruakon on Ihahauna a year from now. You said that last year. Nero replied, unable to hide his confusion. It is last year, replied his wife. Didn't I tell you time works differently here? Now don't forget to take some summer fruits. You'll have to explain the whole thing to them again. Nero paused for a moment, no less confused than he was before. Right, he said. Next year, take our son and his cow and the calf and meet me outside the she. I'm not going through this again. There's one more thing, said the fairy woman. Fergus MacRoch. The King of Ulster, asked Nera. The King of Ulster no longer, she replied. Something changed when the Morrigan went out. He has been deposed. Tell Maeve to call on him for the battle next year. Nera agreed to do as his wife asked and he left the other world the same way as he entered. He arrived at Rathcruachon soon after and it was as his wife said it would be. There was dancing, singing and feasting and fires blazed to keep the revellers warm. When he entered the main hall, his people were shocked to see him. Queen Maeve stood to regard him, making sure he was not some kind of changeling. Where have you been for the last three hours we feared that you were dead? she asked. He showed the assembled the summer berries he brought with him and proceeded to tell his tale of everything that happened, about his vision and how his fairy bride told him it was a prophecy and that next year the slew she would return to burn Rathcruachan how a year had passed as they prepared for battle, that he returned to his wife and now had a son, and that they should call upon Fergus MacRoach to lead the battle. King Allal stood. The next sound you will lead us to the gates of the she, and we will burn it down before they can get to us. The year passed, much like it had passed for Nera before, the Connachta prepared for battle, this time joined by Fergus MacRoach and some of his loyal warriors. 
The following Iahauna, the war band waited at Rath Kruachon, hoofing pieces of meat and handfuls of hazelnuts into them to fortify them for the looming battle. Nera stood alongside King Alil and Queen Maeve at the front of the band of warriors. Do you think we're ready? asked Alil. As ready as we'll ever be to fight the restless dead and the creatures of the she, Nera replied. If you fail tonight, Nera, we'll all be marching with that abominable battalion this time next year, Maeve added. Then we must not fail, said Nera. Be ready to march when we hear the signal. Then they heard a bull calf bellow three times. That's it, said Nera. That's the calf of my son's cow. That's the signal. With that, the war band marched out of Kruakon and Nera led them down the road to the entrance to the other world. They met the unsuspecting Sluishi there and quickly defeated them, and then they went on and attacked the Shi itself, leaving it in ruins and carrying away its treasures. That story doesn't disappoint, does it? It's absolutely wild. A great horror story, but it also has a lot of humour. Yeah, the bit there where the hanged man is giving Nero advice on how to tie the peg is gas. Yeah, and looking for a proper drink for his troubles as well. The Adventures of Nero in the Other World is a very, very old story. The surviving complete version comes from Kuno Meyer's 19th century translation of a manuscript dating from 1517 CE, which is called Egerton's 1782, which with depressing predictability is housed in the British Library. Thieves. Anyway, uh, now in the grand scheme of Irish mythology, 1517 is relatively recent. But the text of the story is in Middle Irish and this surviving version has been dated to at least as far back as the 10th century. It could even be much older than that. It's probable that this Middle Irish version was simply an updated translation of an old Irish text. I say probable for two reasons. Firstly, it is considered one of 14 possible Rauschgael, um, which is a prologue to Anton Bocunia, the cattle raid of Cooley. Secondly, it is devoid of the usual Christian era meddling that portrays the gods as humans or demons or fallen angels that we see in some other texts. And the two things are connected because throughout the Ulster cycle, there is a clear line of demarcation between the gods and the mortals, with the exception of heroic demigods like Cúchulainn. Anton Bocunia itself comes mostly from 10th century texts, but the earliest written versions could have existed as early as the 7th century. And this lack of Christianization dates them much earlier than in the oral tradition. Just a brief explainer on the cycles of Irish mythology. There are four main cycles. The mythological cycle, which is what we have been mainly focusing on so far on the podcast. Uh, these are the stories where you have the gods and their struggles with the Fomorians and the Firbolg and 
in the chronology of Irish mythology, this cycle comes first. While the prose stories are thought to be medieval um, constructs based on older poetic sources. Then you have the Ulster Cycle, which is generally agreed to be set around the first century CE and features the rivalry between Ulster and Connacht and their respective leaders, King Cahar Macnessa and Queen Maeve. And then the Fenian Cycle, sometimes called the Ushian Cycle, is a collection of stories about Finn McCool, um, his son Oshin, and a band of warriors known as the Fena. Chronologically speaking, this is set after the Ulster Cycle. The fourth set of stories is the Historical Cycle, also known as the Cycle of Kings. These stories aren't as interconnected as the other cycles and include stories about characters who are possibly entirely mythological, as well as mythological tales about probable historical figures like Nile of the Nine Hostages and sagas about historically attested figures like Brian Brew. If you're a regular listener, you'll know that we often add detail to our retellings that aren't in the medieval versions in order to meet the demands of modern storytelling. But there is so much in the adventures of Nira and it's so complete a story that we actually took more out than we added in. We did this mainly due to time constraints, but also because as a, a rave scale of Antonbo Cunha, it contains elements that are more relevant to that saga than the story being told itself. Fergus Macruch, for example, has a slightly bigger role in the original. He is the deposed king of Ulster who comes to fight alongside the Knachta. Uh, he's also Maeve's lover in some of the stories of the Ulster Cycle. When the Morgan takes the cow in the story, she meets uh, Cucullin and then there's an interaction between them. It didn't make sense for us to include this part as Cucullin has absolutely no other part in the story. It would have been just like a terrible fan service type of cameo. We actually did add some dialogue, particularly uh, to give Maeve something to say because she doesn't actually have any dialogue in the story, if I uh, recall correctly. And we added a bit of description along with the part where the king rewards the Slushi and also the motive for the murder in it. Just he, he had no motive in the original. He was just a bad egg. Everything else just is straight out of the story. But on to what you probably want to hear about at this time of year. That is the horror elements of the story. If the fact that it was Halloween didn't tip you off that it's a horror story, then the challenge that Alil and Maeve set for their warriors should be the first clue. It's very much the kind of challenge that we'd expect to see in an 80s horror film, you know, one of those like straight to video jobs, where there's a gang of teenagers in a haunted house and one of them dares the others to go down into the basement. And eventually somebody will pipe up and accept the challenge. But you know, as the viewer, it's going to be a bad idea. And it's a particularly bad idea in the world of this story to go out on your own, on Ihahana. We see that all of the brave warriors of the Kanatha, men who wouldn't normally think twice about running head on to fight out, fight an enemy that outnumbered them, quietly decline to go out and face what lurks in the shadows on Halloween night. Well, Nira ends up being the one to volunteer, and we see through his eyes why the others were afraid to accept the challenge. Ihahana, the Eve of Samhain, known today in English as Halloween, is the night when the veil between our world and the other world is at its thinnest. This allows the dead and all the inhabitants of the other world, be they benevolent or malevolent, to enter our realm and do what they will. Again, we draw a comparison with a subgenre of modern horror, the one where the gates of hell open and demons and all sorts run riot. 
Now, in modern horror, this is usually something that happens because some sorcerer that's too big for their boots carries out some ill-advised conjuring. And there is usually a solution along the lines of a spell that can reverse the process or even a technological fix like in the Ghostbusters. But in the world of the Ulster Cycle, for our ancestors and for those who carry on these beliefs in modern times, this is just something that happens once a year. And there's absolutely nothing you can do about it other than stay inside after a certain hour and wait for the veil to go back to normal. But as you're aware at this point, the Balneira thought he could handle whatever was out there. And at first, after he gets over the strange noises, it works out quite well for him. Because the hanged man, despite being a, talk- a talking corpse, actually helps him complete the task that Nero will, will ultimately be rewarded for. But after that, things go a bit skewways for Nero. The hanged man tricks him and kills the two people in the house. And after that, we encounter the Slushi. Now, as we said earlier, the, in this story, they are very similar to zombies. They're literally the walking dead. They stumble and they moan and they do all that. and But they're not out you know, to eat your brains or to turn other people into zombies. They're just out to cause mayhem. A bit like maybe, you know, English football fans away in Europe when they encounter a, a city square with a lot, lot of plastic chairs. You know, that type of thing. Yeah. But, um... Bit Night of the Living Dead. Yeah. Yeah, the term zombie actually comes from Haitian folklore. But unlike the slushy, the zombie is reanimated through necromancy by a witch or sorcerer. They don't usually or don't normally come in numbers either as they are resurrected for a specific purpose, usually one at a time. In Haitian tradition, the zombie is not even always a reanimated corpse. There are two types and the zombie astral is the resurrected soul of the person rather than the body. So it's actually more like a ghost. Modern pop culture zombies are actually more like the sushi, though in most of these depictions... The reanimation has some scientific explanation like an exploding space probe in Night of the Living Dead or a virus in 28 Days Later and The Walking Dead, which actually I started, I've never watched The Walking Dead. Um, I know a few, a few of my friends were no, really neither. into it for a while, but I started watching it just to see how they managed to get 11 seasons and six, you know, six spin-offs. There's, some of them haven't started yet. There's two, two on the go and then there's four more coming about zombies like i just don't understand how they're gonna now so far i think i've watched three episodes and there's like kind of a soap element to it not among the zombies there's no like kind of personal drama among the zombies it's about the people that are running away you know but sure there's star wars have the same have 10 films and how many series and how many books out of this literally the same story over and over and over again ah no it's like... all different stories you know, the prequels are like the Republic versus the Separatists and the original trilogy is the, Repu- the, the Alliance, the Rebel Alliance against the Empire. And the sequel to the trilogy is the Resistance against... For, they're, they're completely different. All of this has happened before and all of this <laughs> no, will happen again. Galactica. I know, but, you know, Battle of that crossover would make things interesting. It's the same story. I'll die yeah. on that hill. When Nira sees the Slushi marching away from a burning Rathcrookan, he decides to go and follow the slushy and he merges into their ranks. He goes along moaning and everything, stumbling with, with the with the slew to, to follow them back to where they came from to try and find out what's going on. And this is where things get really weird, as if they weren't already. Nera follows the slushy back to the other world, thinking that they've burned Kurokan to the ground. But after meeting the king and the she and going to live with the fairy woman who would become his wife, he finds out that what he saw was actually only a vision of the future. And even though a year has passed for him, 
in the other world, it will still be the same Halloween night as when he arrived as when he returns to his world. To convince Maeve and Alil of the story, he brought summer fruits with him because back then you couldn't obviously nip out to Little for a punt of strawberries in late October. So <laughs> there's that. Those of you who are familiar with the story of Ushin and Tiernan Og, I think it's one of the more famous stories in Irish mythology. Um, it's from the Fenian cycle. You'll remember that when the titular hero travels to the other world island uh, with his fairy bride, he is warned not to return to Ireland. After what feels like about three years, he's getting a bit homesick and he decides to, you know, take a chance, maybe go home for Christmas or something. Obviously no Christmas because <laughs> it was before Christianity. But when he returns, hundreds of years have passed and the Fianna no longer exist. Not only that, but everybody that he knew before is dead. It depends on this one story where there's one person, but, um, you know. Yeah, there's a similar story to Ushin's in the Vishnu Purana, uh, an ancient Hindu text dating from sometime in the first century BCE. A king goes to heaven to meet the creator god, Brahma. Um, when he returns to earth, he finds that 108 yugas have passed. Now, a yuga is roughly translated as a generation. And if we go with the modern classification of around 25 years, then we'll be talking about 2,700 years. So these examples are kind of the reverse of what happens thus far in the adventures of Nera. But after that, things get weirder. When he returns to the Shi, despite the fact that he now has a son, he is told that when he returns again to his own world, it will once again be the same night as when he originally left. So it's gone back a year there. So, you know, if you think Christopher Nolan's Inception and Tenet and Interstellar were at the cutting edge of innovative storytelling, now you know that somebody in Ireland uh, was doing this over a thousand years earlier, spinning these like mad yarns. Although Nolan is a good Irish name, maybe one of his ancestors wrote The Adventures of Nero, who knows? It is. Uh, I wonder actually, has he read a bit of Irish mythology? He might have been inspired by it. Yeah, I don't know. There's, There's one to... So get on to maybe there's probably a Reddit thread somewhere. Yeah. Uh, so this view of non-linear time is also interesting, given scientific theories that all points in time could exist at once, or there are many universes and time might work differently in them than it does in ours. Perhaps. Sorry, my throat is very cro- croaky. I have a terrible cold at the moment. But anyway. Um. Yeah. That whole like all of time occurring at once thing reminds me of that film. You actually haven't seen this because I think I maybe watched it when you were in the states. It's called Everything, Everywhere, All at Once with uh, Michelle Yeoh. It's kind of like a, a. It's not. I wouldn't call it, exactly call it a spoof, but it's kind of like a kind of a funny version of some of the Marvel. It's not actually Marvel. It's kind of a takeoff of some of the Marvel, but it's actually better than some of them. It's really, really good. Just a little bit of place lore before we finish. The human world setting for the adventures of Nera in the other world is Rathcrogan, which is modern day Rathcrogan, uh, uh, Rathcrone even. In County Roscommon. Um, Crookan is or was the traditional capital of Connacht. Uh, there is archaeological evidence to suggest human activity at the site stretching all the way back to the Neolithic and all the way through the Bronze and Iron Ages to medieval times. The site has strong associations with Samhain and all things related to the subterranean otherworld of the fair folk, the Shi. Ochlam na Shanarach, Colloquy of the Elders. Uh, tells of how three female werewolves emerge from the cave of Kruachan, an otherworld portal, each Samhain, and kill livestock. So that the cave of Kruachan is also known as 
Onigat, which is an ag- anglicization of Unagat, uh, meaning cave of the cats. It's actually a na- it's a natural limestone cave that has a man-made souterrain or underground tunnel at right at the entrance. In the Battle of My Mokrama, the Alan Trehend, uh, which is a three-legged monster, emerges from Unigat and lays waste to Ireland. And in the Tanbo Ragamna, which is the cattle raid of Ragamon, the Morgan emerges from this cave on a one-legged horse. Alongside the Morgan in on Tanbo Ragna is a cow led by a being with a forked staff to mate with the bull of Cooley, which would make you think of the Dagda. And I suppose the king of the she in the story would actually put you in mind of him too. But unfortunately, that is all we have time for today. Uh, one thing though I do want to mention before we go is just the publication of a book um, that I think might interest listeners to this, or listeners of the, the podcast on this episode in particular. It's called Crum Cruach by Valkyrie Lockcrew and it's published by... Published by uh, Tenebrous Press. And so I suppose it's described as sort of a mix of folkloric, speculative and human horror. And it brings in, there's a lot of Irish mythology. And it's, uh, I think it's like a book for people who are sort of into anarcho-folk, metal, lefty, vampire. No, I don't know if they're vampires, but it's... Is it a novel or is it like, um, is it short stories? Is it graphic novel or it's it's a novel it's, it's a novel. like it's indie horror yeah uh i so. guess it's it's is how you would describe it the artwork on it is pretty pretty cool as well there's like there's a quote from it in one of the instagram posts from the publishers and it's we opened the gate to heaven cora it was horrible it was like a graveyard it was like a weapons factory built from bombed out cities fueled by burning jungles. <laughs> so yeah, it's very dramatic, but um, I think it kind of, it, it checks a lot of boxes. So if you're into horror and folklore, uh, Irish folklore and all of that, I think you might really like this book. I don't know why, but just that bit you read out, I just suddenly imagined Tommy Tiernan doing the audible narration on it. <laughs> oh God, sorry. I'm awful cold. Ugh. We opened the gates of heaven, Cora. It was terrible, <laughs> terrible. Um, yeah so as you said that's all we have time for if you want more Irish mythology podcast sound content we will have a bonus episode on our Patreon page and that is called Where Do the Irish Go When They Die there's also an audio short story there written by myself set on Halloween night it's after some sort of apocalyptic event in a quiet corner of rural Meath, it's called the Battle of Jamestown Bridge. So if you're into that type of thing, check that out. There's other bonus content on there for patrons. And even at the lowest level subscription, you're going to get enhanced show notes and story-only audio and also the story scripts. So that's patreon.com forward slash Irish Mythology Podcast. And you can find us on Twitter at Irish Mythology P, on Facebook, Irish Mythology Podcast, on Instagram at Irish Mythology and online at irishmythologypodcast.ie. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or another platform that includes ratings and you like the show, do us a favour and give us a five star rating. It really helps us reach a wider audience. Until next time, Gurmagav Agaslan. You have been listening to the Irish Mythology Podcast. Written, presented and produced by Marcus O'Hishkeen and Stephanie Nehirny. 
theme music by Damiano Baldoni, Celtic Warrior, on an attribution license. <laughs> <laughs>